Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Andy Graywall, a Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. Uh, Andy primarily writes in the taxation area, but today we're going to be talking about two of his recent papers, uh, the first being the Foreign Emoluments Clause and the Chief Executive, and a follow-up paper, the purposes of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. And we might also talk about some of his other writing in the emoluments area. So uh, welcome, Andy. Hey, great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Okay, yeah, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this. Um, So I figured maybe we could just start with something really basic. Um, What is an emolument anyway, and uh, why should we be interested in them? Well, I guess your simple question uh, uh, is not so simple to answer. Uh, What is an emolument has been the source of considerable debate and a few pending court cases. Uh, On one end, people believe that an emolument means anything of value, such that under the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause, which applies to federal officials, any federal official who gets anything, any benefits, or anything of value from a foreign country without congressional consent has violated the Constitution. So that's one view. An emolument means any benefits, anything of value imaginable. Uh, under another view, the one I articulated in my papers, uh, an emolument refers generally to compensation for services performed, uh, analogous to a salary. Under that view, a federal official would violate the Constitution only if he or she worked as uh, an employee, officer, or independent contractor for a foreign country. And that's what's uh, being debated or has been debated over the last couple of years, this very broad definition or this uh, narrower definition. Okay, so so what I'm gathering then, and ultimately this is a, a discussion about the constitutional provisions limiting whether certain federal officials can receive emoluments, however we want to define those? Yeah, nobody would care about what an emolument was otherwise, but uh, there's a couple of constitutional provisions, a foreign emoluments clause that again says that federal officials cannot receive emoluments from foreign countries. And there's something that's uh, now referred to as a domestic emoluments clause, which says that a president can receive no emolument from the United States or any of the individual states except for his fixed compensation. The foreign um, provision was is largely understood as an anti-corruption provision. We don't want our ambassadors, for example, being on the payroll of France while negotiating a U.S. treaty with France. Uh, the domestic clause has a similar orientation. That is, uh, we do not want a president favoring one state over another uh, in return for compensation from that particular state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's been 250 years that these clauses have been in the Constitution, right? Surely we know what an emolument is by now. <laughs> you would think, but this actually has never been uh, definitively litigated. There's a couple lower court decisions that deal with uh, uh, the domestic emoluments clause, but the foreign clause has never been uh, addressed judicially until now. Huh. Interesting. Um, so, so in your paper, you describe a few different, or in both of your papers, you you describe a few different ways that we might 
think about the definition of an emolument or ways of interpreting what the clauses do? And you, you distinguish in particular between textualism and purposivism. I was wondering if you could explain the difference between the two and why would it matter to our understanding of what, what an emolument is and how the emoluments clause works? Well, this really folds into broader debates over constitutional interpretation. Uh, one way of looking at the clause is, as you mentioned, a purpose-based approach. We might generally say that whatever these words by themselves might mean or not mean, this clause was directed towards addressing corruption uh, among federal officials with respect to their foreign government relations. Mm-hmm. And if you adopt that approach, you might say, well, whether or not something meets the dictionary definition of an emolument, anything, any arrangement that um, raises a potential conflicts of interest should be caught by the clause. That'd be a very purpose-based approach. Um, I lean towards a more textualist approach. That is, I'm very concerned with, with what the word emolument means. And if you take a more textual approach, the question isn't, well, is this arrangement good or bad? It's, does it fit within the meaning of the term? Uh-huh. In, the context of, in the context of present debates, uh, one can quite reasonably argue that, for example, a U.S. president having business interests across the globe raises the potential for corruption. Uh, and a purpose-minded person might therefore believe that our sitting president has violated the Foreign Emoluments Clause. A more text-minded person like me would say, well, emolument refers to compensation for services, and unless the president is on the payroll of a foreign government, there's been no violation. Right. So this is not merely an idle dispute, given current circumstances with with the president's business interests, uh, like very broad business interests. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's perhaps not as prominent as it was a couple of years ago, given the nature of our news cycle. But uh, this was probably the first major constitutional controversy. If you recall, after the uh, November 2016 election, there was a ultimately unsuccessful movement for to push the Electoral College to vote for somebody other than um, whom the voters had voted for. Right. And adv- advocacy groups argued that the, electoral, the electors could reasonably vote for somebody else when they actually met or registered their votes um, because Trump was allegedly violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Uh, that was unsuccessful, but soon after um, the president took office, an emoluments-related lawsuit was filed, and a couple more followed in the ensuing months. Hmm. Okay, well, I, I want to return to the, to the textualist, textualist uh, interpretation in a minute because um, I thought your discussion of why that you think that's the best approach was really interesting. But, but one thing I wanted to get at, because I thought it was an important point that I hadn't really seen made at least extensively in other uh, locations, was you distinguish between two different kinds of purposivism and how those different kinds or different applications of purposivism in an emoluments context might re- might reach different conclusions. Yeah, so there's a, an extremely strong purpose of approach, which I think is belt suspenders and everything else, uh, which contemplates that we cannot even have any potential risk of corruption. Therefore, any type of benefits constitutes an emolument under the Constitution, uh, such that a federal official violates the Constitution upon taking any type of benefit from a foreign government. A more reserved approach might be, 
Well, it is only those benefits that relate to a federal official's position with the U.S. government that violates the Constitution. So uh, there, that would be a, a narrower approach which has, has not been advanced in litigation, but I have seen uh, other commentators uh, tee up. That is, no, we want to avoid absurd results. We do not want it to be the case that Barack Obama violated the domestic emoluments clause by virtue of uh, holding treasury bills and receiving interest income. We're more concerned with any types of payments that relate to or have some connection or influence on uh, his position with the United States. Right. So that one, you know, one of the interesting, or I think one of the really compelling objections you have to this really broad form of proposivism is that it seems to create a, a really untenable kind of situation for anyone who has an office under the United States, and especially anyone who has an office and is doing work for the United States overseas, such as it, such that it seems like it might almost be impossible to avoid receiving an emolument. Yeah, under the broadest view, every every president and likely any federal official who has ever ever traveled abroad will have violated the Constitution. If emolument means any benefits imaginable. Geez, just getting foreign government security at your hotel or residence um, would constitute an emolument. Uh, riding on a foreign government-owned airline would be an emolument. Anything imaginable. It's very hard to uh, just exist in a country without having some type of interaction or driving some type of benefit from the government there. And uh, yet under the broadest reading of emoluments, uh, any type of benefit would be prohibited and would establish constitutional violations. Yeah, I mean that just seems that just seems pretty unworkable. And and you know you you pointed out you, you pointed to one thing that I thought was really interesting, which was this uh, amendment to the Constitution that was a- almost adopted. Right? I mean, it was so close to being adopted, and it seems like that in particular for me that was a really you know. It, it really suggested that a purposive reading of of the of the term emoluments and the concept of emoluments would be um, pretty draconian. Yeah, as originally drafted and as um, enacted, the foreign emoluments clause applies to federal officials. Around 1810, Congress proposed to um, amend the foreign emoluments clause such that it applied to everybody. And Congress passed it by wide margins. It fell within two states of ratification. But if this had actually been ratified, and if it is a case that emolument means any benefit imaginable, then it would mean that uh, lots of U.S. citizens would be in trouble because the consequence specified in the clause would be if you accept a foreign emolument, you lose your citizenship. And under the broadest definition, if an ambassador comes into your bakery or butchery and buys something from you, that is, if you engage in any type of business transaction with a foreign representative, you have violated the clause and therefore have lost your citizenship. It seems very odd that Congress would, by wide margins, pass such a thing and that so many states would jump on board. Would they really have um, nearly passed this amendment? that would have robbed people of uh, their citizenship just by virtue of making 
a sale of bread or meat to a foreign representative seems very odd. It seems much more likely that they were referring to emoluments as uh, akin to compensation for services. That is, you lose your U.S. citizenship if you go on the payroll of Germany, France, and so on. Yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, under that interpretation, it'd be like doing business abroad would be akin to like playing Russian roulette or something. Or not even abroad. Um, under In the present context, folks argue that, for example, when foreign ambassadors rent rooms in the Trump Hotel, that violates the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Oh, wow. Uh, so it could be an ambassador who's a French ambassador who's staying in New York. If he or she comes into your shop and buys something from you, that would be a violation and you would lose your citizenship. Oh my, it seems like very quickly we would have no more U.S. citizens left. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that would shrink the voting base quite a bit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> seems, seems unlikely. Okay, well, so let's, let's shift a little bit and talk about your textualist approach to the emoluments clause and maybe just give a little bit more color as to how that works, what kind of conclusions it reaches and, and why you think that's the best approach. Yeah, I think uh, right off the bat, we should acknowledge that first the foreign emoluments clause or the domestic emoluments clause is not our only ethical rule. I think a common objection to my reading is that, well, it permits um, loose behavior or, or unethical arrangements. That's not true. Uh, if we read these emolument as referring to compensation, that hardly means that a president or federal official can be corrupt. Uh, for most federal officials, there's a, a complex um, ethical statutory regime that regulates their conduct. Um, so my understanding of the, of the clauses is that an emolument refers to compensation for services, and the sky has not – the sky – has not fallen under that interpretation mm -hmm. uh, until November 2016. In fact, every single legal authority that existed on these clauses interpreted emoluments the way I do. That is, uh, again, akin to a salary. We don't have judicial decisions necessarily, but we do have plenty of executive branch interpretations, legislative branch interpretations, congressional enactments, statutes that's implicitly uh, – adopt this textualist approach. So uh, I think it's for good reason that we just never heard uh, about the Ford Emoluments Clause before November 2016. It's, it's, it's important in the way that any constitutional provision is important, but it's never been the linchpin to, our, to uh, an ethical government. It's a, one piece of the puzzle, and uh, a textualist approach I think would not yield um, the absurd results that some believe that it does. Yeah, yeah, no, and you you you, you, you pointed to an observation, but I think it was from Joseph Story or something, was it? Yeah, that you know, if we're if what we're worried about is corruption, it's kind of unclear whether this sort of emoluments-based way of thinking about it would necessarily even be all that effective. Yeah, Joseph Story wondered well. Is this provision really necessary? If someone's ethical, he or she probably would not go on the payroll of a foreign government to begin with. And if someone's unethical, well, they're not going to care about the constitutional restriction. Um, maybe that's overstating things, but Joseph Story is, of course, a notable commentator, and he did question the efficacy of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so one thing that, that I was hoping you could clear up for me 
a little bit was the difference between the textualist approach that you advocate or that you think is the, the right approach and the kind of moderate purposivist approach? Because it seems like, at least in a lot of cases, they might end up effectively at the same place, even if they kind of get there through slightly different means. Do, do you think there's a more substantive difference between the two than that? Yeah, well, I think the moderate, the moderate purposivist approach, again, is generally looking at that type of comp, that type of payment which can influence a federal official or that arises by reason um, of his or her office. So under that approach, for example, if the government of Kuwait rents a ballroom at the Trump Hotel, believing that the president will be more favorable to their country, that would violate the Constitution um, under that moderate purpose of this approach. Under a textualist approach, uh, those types of arrangements would be constitutionally permitted. They may be unethical, they may raise at least ethical concerns, but unless the government of Kuwait actually hired President Trump as a consultant, no um, constitutional violation would arise. So really the difference between the moderate approach and the textualist approach is has the president or other federal official actually formally entered into an employment or similar uh, relationship with the foreign government. Under the moderate purpose of this approach, that is not determinative. Under the textualist approach, it is. Okay, okay, okay. I, so I think I get it better now. And and in your paper, you developed a theory of how to conceptualize the kind of textualist approach in the context of payment to entities of various kinds as opposed to hiring people directly and how that might work in in practice and in relation to different kinds of of entities and i thought that was really pretty creative and interesting and i hadn't hadn't seen that elsewhere and it, it seems like really relevant to some of the current questions that are out there given that you know uh, to the extent people are worried about President Trump, it's because he owns so many businesses that might accept so many payments. Yeah, I think uh, it's unfortunate that uh, so many, including courts and litigants, have breezed over the fact that uh, all payments to the Trump organization aren't being made to President Trump himself, but through entities owned by him directly, indirectly, sometimes with majority interests or sometimes with um, sole interests. And that's a, it's actually relevant. I understand the, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, who cares if the payment goes to his corporation as opposed to him? But our history related to this cause actually um, recognizes that there are complications that arise when a payment goes to an entity as opposed to the federal official himself or herself. And uh, now, under just general principles of law, a person can be deemed to have received a payment even if it goes to an entity, if I just set up my own corporation and I have the government of Kuwait pay that corporation and then have the corporation pay me, even putting aside constitutional law, just under general principles of law, we might find that uh, the government of Kuwait has paid me indirectly. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I own one share in IBM and IBM performs a consulting IT contract for the government of Kuwait and IBM does not pass along that payment to me, except maybe in the form of a general dividend. Uh, nobody would seriously suggest that I was working for 
the government of Kuwait by virtue of my owning a share in IBM. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there are nuances that have to be addressed. That is, if you own an interest in an entity and you're actually doing the work for the entity, if you own a dental practice and somebody comes in, a foreign ambassador, and hires you for dental work, in those circumstances, it's much easier to say you've been paid by a foreign government because you essentially are the corporation. You are, you are the one who is providing services. That's not the case, though, uh, for larger enterprises or, for that matter, for the Trump organization, given the president's apparent lack of involvement in the day-to-day operations of the organization. Right. So the, so the interposing entity, so long as it isn't a fiction, then would obviate the possibility of something being characterized as an emolument. Yeah, generally speaking, as long as the federal official is not involved in the business of the, um, of the interposed entity, mm-hmm. that, should, uh, that should settle the issue. And, and that is the approach taken by the Comptroller General in the Office of Legal Counsel. And uh-huh. this, issue has, this, this issue arises. You have federal officials who set up um, corporations and they provide consulting services and our government officials have to figure out, well, are these violations of the Foreign Emoluments Clause? They try to figure out uh, how do we deal with interposed entities? And so there's this body of law, again, not judicial, but there is a body of law that has been overlooked in the present debates. Huh. So as I recall, in your paper, you kind of set up a three-part test like each part of which needs to be satisfied in order for a payment to be characterized as an emolument. Am I remembering that correctly? Well, yeah, because, uh, because the Comptroller General and the Office of Legal Counsel have adopted somewhat different approaches, I suggest uh, perhaps an approach that would reconcile um, how we apply the Foreign Emoluments Clause to uh, entity arrangements. And in short, I just try to follow the language of the, of the clause itself. That is, we want to apply the clause to circumstances where a foreign government negotiates for the services of the federal official himself or herself. We're not concerned with the ambassador going in and buying a taco bowl at uh, a Trump <laughs> restaurant. We're more concerned with circumstances where if a, federal, if a foreign government says, you know what, I'm hiring the Trump Consultancy Organization, LLC, and I want Trump himself to work under this contract, that's the type of arrangement that raises red flags. Uh-huh. Uh, we also want to make sure that we're dealing with circumstances where the federal official actually is doing the work. Uh, if, you just, if you went to the Trump Organization and you hired, if you went to the salon or spa there, and somebody gave you a massage, well, you're, probably, you're not hiring President Trump unless he comes into the room himself and, you know, oils you up. Um, Andy, 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 this is not an image I want in my head. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, the law is difficult. And, you know, it's, uh, these, uh, these are important questions that have to be addressed. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love and, that. Uh, yeah. So, and, and, yeah, yeah. No, no, continue. Oh, and, and lastly, I think uh, if we're going to say that a foreign government has hired you, the federal official, through your uh, business, it should be the case that you actually get the money. Uh, again, if, uh, if it's one thing to say that if a foreign government hired IBM, and then IBM performs services and 
controls the flow of funds. In those circumstances, again, I don't think anybody would say I worked for um, a foreign government. But it might be different if a foreign government hired IBM and then hired me to actually do the work on the company's behalf. Uh-huh. In those circumstances, it's much easier to say that I have actually worked for a foreign government through uh, the entity. Right. I mean, it seems like one benefit of your textualist approach is it, it at the very least makes it a lot easier for people to know ex ante whether uh, whether or not a particular payment is likely to be an emolument or not and avoid circumstances where the clause might be at issue. Yeah, and, uh, and that is a highly relevant consideration. Again, in um, popular audiences, uh, the Foreign Emoluments Clause has become relevant only recently, but for a very long time, our government has had to wrestle with this clause uh, because it actually applies fairly widely. There are many federal officials. There are many people in the um, armed services, for example, who are potentially subject to the clause. And the Department of Defense, for example, has to advise uh, its personnel how to comply with this clause. And historically, they've told the the, uh, armed services officers that emolument means compensation for services. So don't go work for a foreign government. They never told them, well, avoid any benefit imaginable, you know, uh, lock yourself in a, a rubber room if you're in a foreign country to avoid an emolument. Mm-hmm. They've understood it in a more textualist, practical way. Don't work for a government directly. Yeah, when it seems like that kind of historical practice ought to count for something, right? I mean... You would think. Uh, we'll see. So far, the the courts, which have addressed only standing issues, haven't seemed too concerned with the practical consequences um, they seem to have thread the needle uh, or avoided the issues, but certainly as the cases progress, you would think at some point either an appellate court or potentially the Supreme Court will recognize that uh, adopting the plaintiff's interpretation, this broad purposivist approach, uh, really would have caused much collateral damage to many, many thousands of federal officials. Right, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, so shifting gears just a little bit, um, Reading your papers, I was really struck by the way in which the question on its face, the question about, you know, what's the meaning of the emoluments clause looks like a kind of core con law type question. And, you know, you're primarily a tax scholar. uh, and, And I'm wondering if you think that your tax background gave you perspective on some of these questions that maybe some of the other people engaging in the debate uh, didn't have? Yeah, I think uh, probably it would be best if every academic began his or her career as a tax lawyer. Let me tell you why. Uh, When you start out as a tax lawyer, you deal with very complex questions of tax law. There's very little authority out there. There may be, they're highly ambiguous, but they're issues in which no sane person could feel emotional about. Mm-hmm. So you you just dig deeply into the law, trying to figure out, you know, not not an answer because there often is no you know, single answer, but your approach is just navigating through the authorities and trying to figure out the interpretation that fits best within the overall framework of the law. And I think that's the approach that I've adopted to all my scholarship, including the work on the monuments. That is. Uh, for me, there isn't a political orientation. That is, this is a textual puzzle that has to be addressed by resorting to 
legal authorities, statutory context, constitutional context, and so on. And I do think that that uh, believing kind of or having a background in just dry, careful legal analysis has been an asset as I wrestle through this issue and other issues of the day. Yeah, well, and it struck me that, I mean, your papers bring to these interpretations a kind of granularity that I haven't seen in a lot of other analysis, especially like your discussion of consequences for entities, for example. I mean, it read very much like a tax analysis to me. Yeah, and so in terms of, uh, in, with respect to that topic in particular, that would be an area where others gloss over. Uh, you know, they're not terribly concerned with the presence of an entity. It's just, uh, that's just shuffling papers. But I think it is an important issue. And as importantly, it's an issue that those who have applied the Foreign Emoluments Clause, the government officials who have applied it in the past, um, have recognized. So I think that attention to detail in this area is uh, valuable. And I hope that my paper makes a contribution to the debate um, uh, in terms of paying attention to those issues. Yeah, well, I can only imagine or hope, I guess, that the courts will find your analysis illuminating and useful as they continue to ponder some of these pending lawsuits. I do too. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Andy, this has been, been great and very illuminating for me. I was wondering if you had any kind of final thoughts or observations about emoluments and sort of the current situation that you wanted to, to leave my listeners with. Uh, I do not have any uh, brilliant final thoughts. I would just uh, hope everyone uh, uh, forms their conclusions on this issue after careful analysis. We had a, as soon as this issue was arose, it seemed like we had experts. We had we had newly discovered experts within 24 hours. But there are a lot of nuances here. I would recommend that if someone's interested in the issues, take the time, uh, learn about it yourself, look at both sides, and reach a conclusion. Uh, there's really a lot more here than uh, Trump is bad or Trump is good. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Andy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brian. 